Some of you may know the story, Katie was reminding me of it earlier in the week, of uh, Corey Tinboom. But if you don't know the story of Corey Tinboom, her and her family lived in a country um, in the 1930s and 40s that was controlled by the Nazis. And they were not ideologically in line with the Nazis. Um, they were Christians. They were devout Christians. They were very faithful to the Lord. And the Nazis put out this edict, this instruction, this executive order, so to speak, that said uh, if you disagreed with the government on certain items of religion, what you believed, then you had to wear something on your clothes that identified who you were. Uh, and this particular edict pinpointed the Jews. And so they had to wear this or they would be arrested. And so they did. And as things like this tend to happen, uh, it progressed beyond that, that not only were these people targeted by the government because of what they believed and had to identify themselves as believing that, eventually it came to the point to where they were not able to receive not only government assistance because they believed what they believed, they were not able to buy groceries because they believed what they believed. And then it eventually got to the point to where it was illegal to believe what they believed. And they were going to be arrested and sent to prison camps. Well, the Ten Boom family, being devout followers of Jesus, uh, disagreed with this edict, even though it wasn't targeting them specifically. And so they built this little place in their house. It was in their daughter, Corey. It was in her room. Uh, it was a, a little hiding place in her room where they hid Jewish families from the authorities to keep them protected and keep them safe. Uh, and they did this at the risk of their own lives because aiding and abetting someone that the government is, is targeting is not good for them. Well, eventually it caught up with them. Even though they were trying to do this thing, they were trying to protect. They were breaking all kinds of rules in doing this. <laughs> but the, everyone in the family, even Corey, one of the daughters, they had two daughters um, and a son, if I'm right, Katie, is that right? Yeah. Uh, even the kids were in absolute agreement because of their faith in Jesus. This was what they needed to do. Well, the government came into their house and busted them because someone they had trusted had turned them in to the government. And uh, the government arrested the family and carted them off to prison camps. And that day that they were arrested was the last day that Corey and her sister saw her father and brother. And they all went to separate prison camps. Shortly thereafter, um, I think just a few days, the father died, maybe a week or so, in his camp. And Corey and her sister went to the same prison camp. And uh, her sister was in poor health most of the time they were in the prison camp. And it was terrible. The things that went on there were terrible. The guards were terrible. They did terrible things. Um, and all throughout that time, Corey really struggled with her faith in that terrible place. But her sister, her faith just grew to an exponential portion, even in the prison camp, and was out there sharing the gospel with the other people, the other prisoners, sharing the gospel with the guards and encouraging her sister, Corey, in the process, giving her more Jesus in the struggle. And it went on and on and on and got to this one point 
these rule breakers, these faithful people, uh, that her sister died in the prison camp and Corey was released on a clerical error. It was a mistake. She should not have been let out, but she was. It was God's timing. Because shortly thereafter, everyone who was her age were taken out and executed. But she was let out, and she got out, and uh, her faith was, at that point, had got to the level of her sisters, was incredible, was strengthened, was, she believed God had protected and, and taken care of her, even in the midst of the struggle, even in, when the world said, when, when the world, through the evil and sin, only offered death, Jesus offered her and her sister life, her family life, in an incredible way. And so then Corey began to tour the country as the war came to a conclusion and the war ended. And she began to tour not just the country, but the world, telling people about what Jesus had done, about how God had protected her and God had taken care of her and her sister and the whole bunch of stories uh, through that. You should actually go and read. Eric Metaxas wrote, he wrote several books, uh, but one is incredible. Uh, it's called Seven Women. Is that right? That's what it's called, right? He wrote a book called Seven Men, Seven Women, and another one called Seven More Men. People who were incredibly faithful and strong in their lives. And uh, her story is in that book, a brief account of it. She also wrote a book herself called The Hiding Place. Uh, you should go and read that book as well. But, uh, but she began to tour and, and tell people about Jesus and all that Jesus did for her. But in one place she was telling people about Jesus, she recognized someone's face in the crowd. It was one of the guards from the prison camp that her and her sister were at. Not just one of the random guards, it was the guard in the shower. And who did and said not very kind things. And she saw him there and at the end of her sharing the gospel and, and giving her testimony, there was a receiving line and people would come up and shake her hand and tell about what God had done in their lives because of her story. And this guy got in the line and anxiety began to well up within her. She began to get, you know, she just told everyone in the room of, of the desperate need of they had, that they had to receive the forgiveness of God, but also the desperate need they have to forgive others. And here comes this man who did unspeakable things to her and her sister, and she just talked about forgiveness. And the line's getting shorter, and, you know, you get that when, you, when you're dreading a conversation. It's kind of almost like a ringing in your ears, and you're not knowing what's going on and not really having these conversations, but not really having these conversations. And the guy's getting closer, and he gets up to her, and he, held, he extends his hand to shake, his hand to shake her hand. And she doesn't extend hers immediately. And it all happens in a moment, but she has this long conversation in her mind of what she's going to do. Because up until this moment, she's hated this man. This man specifically, she's hated him with everything she, I mean, even though she's forgiven, she knows she, she's forgiven, she has forgiven so many things that happened, but she's hated this guy. And here he is trying to shake her hand. And he asks for forgiveness. And she, in that moment, in the praying and in the conversation she has with herself and with the spirit, she extends her hand back and forgives him. Because she knows, as is her own personal testimony, that because of sin and because of evil people in the world, this world offers death. That's all that it offers, hopelessness and death. But through Jesus, there is life. Through Jesus, there is life. And people who are diametrically opposed to each other in every possible way, people who have been terrible to each other in every possible way, can still find a way together through Jesus. And she forgave this man. 
She gave him life there because of Jesus in her life. Corey Ten Boom. And that's exactly what we're going to see today in John chapter 5. Jesus offering life when the world offers only death. This rule breaker, Corey Ten Boom. Here in John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 9. Jesus uh, has, he adjusts what we talked about last week. He had healed this man just outside the temple. He was a man who had faith in superstition. He, had, he was a man who did not have faith in God. He had faith in water, that water, magic water could heal him. But it wasn't the water that healed him. It was the water of life. It was the living water, Jesus, who healed him. And the man was healed in an incredible way. He got up, he walked, he picked up his bed, and he walked. But there was a problem with what he did that day. In doing that, he was violating a rule. Just like Corey Ten Boom and her family were rule breakers, this guy broke a rule. He carried his bed. He was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And that's what was the problem. It was the Sabbath day. Look at verse 9 of John chapter 5. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed. Now when it says Jews there, it's not talking about Jews in general here. It's talking about the Jewish leaders the guys who were in charge, the, the Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, could be Sadducees, it could be the guys, members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, it could be priests, it was just the rulers, the guys in charge. The Jews approached him and they said to him, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament law, if you've read all of them, hundreds and hundreds, and you know them backwards and forwards, you may. I don't. <laughs> There is not one law in the Old Testament law that says anything about not carrying your bed on the Sabbath. There's not one. Not one. You see, the purpose of the law was to point people for their need to a Savior. That was the whole reason it was given, was that you can't do this by yourself. You need someone to save you from yourself. But what these guys did over the years in receiving the Jewish law is they kind of perverted it a little bit. And to prevent them from violating any of the laws, they set up kind of buffer rules around the laws to keep them from getting anywhere near the actual law that was given. And this not carrying your bed on the Sabbath was one of those buffer rules. But in doing that, they missed the whole point of the law. It was supposed to point them to a need for a Savior. And what they began to do is they began to see the law as their, as their uh, avenue towards salvation. Rather than God being the Savior, they saw the law as the Savior. And so they almost began to, they lived as though the law were how they were going to get to heaven. And that was never what it was intended to do. And they, so they're missing the point. And so th what this man's breaking here is one of those buffer rules. <clears throat> He's not breaking the law. And so they're saying, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. They have elevated their own rules to the same level as the Word of God. There's a problem in that. Look at verse 11. The man answered them, or he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So what this guy's saying to the Jewish leaders, I mean, these guys were political powerhouses. They ran the town. And this guy's saying to them, well, I'm just doing what the guy told me to do. He healed me. And so if, if I've been you know, lame, if I've been paralyzed for 40 years and somebody comes up and says, heal me, I'm going to do what that guy says. 
He says, so that guy healed me and he told me to carry my bed. And so I carried my bed because he healed me. What else could I do in the moment? He chose to listen to the one who healed him rather than really these guys. These guys who all, in truth, these guys avoided him, except in this moment to come up to him and tell him what he's doing wrong. Y'all know anybody like that? (laughs) Who only comes to you to tell you what you're doing wrong? Who only complains about what you're doing wrong? Who only says, man, you're doing that not right. Maybe it's somebody in your house telling you you load the dishwasher wrong. Maybe it's, I don't know, don't nudge anybody at the moment. But maybe that's your only relationship with this person, these people, is they all they ever do is tell you what you're doing wrong. Well, that's the only contact this man has with these guys is they're coming up to him saying, you're doing something wrong. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus didn't approach the man and tell him he's been doing anything wrong. Jesus approached the man and healed him. Look at verse 12. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now this is incredibly interesting. Jesus heals the guy without identifying himself as Jesus. Jesus wasn't wearing a name tag. He said, hey, I'm Jesus. He's not like on all the movies wearing, he, he probably wasn't wearing a white robe. If you wore a white robe back then, it'd get really, really dirty. <laughs> he'd probably wearing something that, you know, brown or something, I don't know. But uh, he just looked like a guy, just a regular guy. And he was healed by Jesus, but he didn't know it was Jesus. He hadn't met Jesus before. He said, I don't know who it was. Just some guy came up and healed me. I, he didn't say, you know, give his, announce his name first. Hey, I'm Jesus, I heal you. He didn't say that. He just came up and did it. And so this guy tells the Jewish leaders this, and then he continues to walk around the temple kind of telling, testifying, I've been healed by some guy. I've been healed. It's incredible. I was paralyzed for 38 years, and now I'm, you see me. I'm walking around. Kind of like last week, we had Gus Alvarez give his testimony. He had been paralyzed, and then we, he walked up here on the stage and gave his testimony. If you were not here last week, you've got to go watch it. It is incredible to see his story. It's right at the beginning of the message. It's so, so good. And that's what this guy is. He's walking around the temple. But Jesus, even though he didn't identify himself in that moment, he knew what he was going to do, and he approaches the guy later and gives him this word in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Now sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now look at that. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It may seem like Jesus is saying, you were paralyzed because you did something wrong. You were paralyzed because you sinned. That's not what he's saying here. I know in our minds, sometimes that's the way we operate, is that if we do something wrong, we make God unhappy, and then he strikes back at us with some kind of illness or something. Sometimes there are physical ramifications to spiritual, you know, spiritual um, things that we do incorrectly. And this world has natural consequences to sin sometimes. But God is not vindictive. That's not the way God operates. Even in the Old Testament, some people say, yeah, Old Testament God, that's the way he does it. It's not. God is not vindictive in that way. He's not. If you read all of those passages in context, that's not the way God works. You see, this man, Jesus is saying to this man, look at his words there specifically. You are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. This phrase, sin no more, it means to repent. 
turn away from a sinful life. Turn away from sin. Now, to repent means to turn away from. It's what we tell you when you want to know Jesus. You need to repent. You need to turn away from what you were living like. You need to turn away from sin. And if you turn away from sin, you have to turn towards something. Turning away from sin, repenting, turning away from that, you have to turn towards something. So he's telling the man, you need to turn from what you were to what is. And look what he says next, that nothing worse may happen to you. He's not speaking about physical things here. What's worse than being paralyzed and all alone for 40 years? Separated from God, exactly right. He's talking about eternal punishment in hell. He's talking about a spiritual issue. He's saying you need to repent so that your eternity is secure in heaven. Jesus is giving the man the gospel, is what Jesus is doing. So Jesus, look at what it says, Jesus found him. First, Jesus found him down by that pool of water and healed him. Here, Jesus finds him in the temple, gives him the gospel, gives the man the gospel, and gives it into him. And the purpose of this is not so that the man will go about and continue his life as it was. I mean, the next day, does the man go back to the pool? No, his life's been changed. He's completely different than he was the day before. His life is completely changed because Jesus is in the business of changing lives. Jesus is in the business of changing lives, not merely displaying religious activity, but changing lives from the inside out. Now, those other guys... Those Jewish leaders, the Jews there, they were concerned not about the man's spiritual condition, not about his, his, his insides. They were concerned about the way it looked, him carrying his bed, violating the buffer rules for the law. They were concerned about that. They were concerned about the outside, not the inside. Jesus was in the business of changing lives. Lives changed from the inside out because you have to change what's inside first. And he said that in several different places. You see, I've got this cup here. We had a discussion this morning uh, when I got to the church, whether it's a tea cup or a coffee cup. What would y'all say? China <laughs> Take a cheat. Take a side, side door there. <laughs> uh, but you guys can see the outside of this cup, yeah? You can't see what's inside this cup. Would you say this is a muddy cup? From what you can see, you have no idea. It could be. It could be filled with something terrible and nasty, but you have no idea. It looks good on the outside. And these Jewish leaders, that's all they cared about, what looked good on the outside. They didn't care at all what was inside as long as it looked okay. As, I mean, as long as it looked good and they were wearing their Sunday best, everything was good to go as long as it gave that appearance. But the inside was terrible and nasty and gross and had not been washed in seven years and the kids had taken it in the backyard and scooped up a bunch of mud with it and then put it back in the cabinet, you wouldn't know any better. You wouldn't know any better. But what happens when you, if you took some soap and water and began to wash the inside of the cup? Would any of that soap and water get on the outside? It would. You ever done any dishes, anybody? Ever done any dishes? A few of you? Few, few of you, so I, I, <laughs> I saw a wife look at her husband. <laughs> and so to say, you need to do it more. 
But if you put soap and water on the inside of something, it's going to spill on the outside and begin to clean the outside, whether you start on the outside or not. So if you start on the inside and get the inside going and you shove your hand in there and you're washing it good, you get the little brush thing in, you get going, it's going to clean the outside before you even get to focus on it if you're working on the inside. But if you work, it takes consistency and it takes time and it takes effort. If you're working on the inside, the outside will come, but it, you have to start on the inside. Because if you start on the outside, the inside's still going to get dirty. And if you start on the outside, by the time you get to the inside, the outside's going to get re-dirty. You have to start with what's inside first. And that's why Jesus goes to this man and gives him the gospel. He goes to this man and he gives him the gospel. And just because if you are observing somebody else's life and what you see, you may not see a difference in their life. Or if you're looking at your own life, you may not see a difference in your own life immediately. You may say, I don't see any change. But just because you don't see any change, just because you don't see something different doesn't mean there is no change. Doesn't mean there's not change going on. Change takes place over time. Growth happens over time. If you've got kids in your house, they don't look bigger from one day to the next. But if you take your kid who hasn't seen their grandparents since pre-COVID and you show up on Christmas, they're going to say, man, that kid got big. It changes over time. Even if you don't see it, there's still change happening. If you're going through the growth process, if you're pursuing Christ and you're in Scripture and you're following after Jesus, your insides are going to change. And that will eventually come out to your outsides. But you have to start with the inside. You've got to start changing from the inside because that's what Jesus' business is all about. He's in the business of changing lives. And he was consistent throughout all of his ministry, pointing people to the kingdom, to eternity, just like this man. He did not let the day pass without finding him. That's what the verse said. He found him without finding him and giving him the truth of the gospel. And Jesus was consistent with his purpose and approach that the gospel was more important than any set of rules, always. The gospel was more important than any set of rules. Whether that be carrying his bed on the Sabbath, you, say, you may say, well, that's no big deal to me. I can't carry my bed on the Sabbath. Well, what about other preconceived rules we have set in our brains that we just can't get over? And sometimes because we can't get over those rules, we may stand in the way of somebody else coming to Jesus. What if somebody walked into church wearing a hat? What if somebody was running in the sanctuary? What if somebody stood on the pew with their dirty shoe? What if somebody came in the church building drunk? Would we have a problem with any of that? Should we have, though? If that person needs Jesus, who cares if they're wearing a hat? They need Jesus. We had somebody come in here one time who was drunk. And somebody in our church approached them and was not that kind. And that lady who came in drunk, I knew for a fact, because I'd been talking with her for weeks, needed Jesus desperately. She never came back. I had a conversation with that church member later, though. James, in Acts chapter 15, says we should not do anything 
that would stand in the way of somebody coming to Jesus. We should not make the way harder of somebody coming to Jesus because the gospel is the thing that matters the most. Wearing a hat is not the issue. The issue is coming to Jesus. Let's get the inside right. Because if they go out and have a car wreck and die and the thing they hear from me is not the gospel but about their hat, I've got to answer for that to Jesus someday. And Jesus is saying, it's the set of rules is not the issue here. It's not. The issue is the kingdom. The issue is eternity. The issue is salvation. That is what is most important, more important than anything else. It's about salvation over and above it all. It's not even about the denomination of church you go to. It's not about the preacher who's, who's preaching the word. If they're preaching the word, that's all that matters. If they're reading it in a monotone voice, but it's the gospel, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians is that should be enough for us. Whether it's online or in person, if it's the gospel, that should be enough. The method is not what matters. What matters is the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. You better believe if Paul had technology, he'd be using it up and one side and down the other. We would not be able to get Paul off our screens. He'd be everywhere. He used every method he had at his disposal to get the gospel out, and people hated his guts for it because the gospel is what matters the most. The gospel is what matters the most. In a thousand years, that's all that is going to be the issue is the gospel when we're all in heaven. And here, Jesus gives the gospel to this man. He didn't care the guy who was carrying a bedroll, not carrying the bedroll in the temple. That wasn't the issue. The issue was this man needs the gospel. Jesus didn't say, all right, you need to take that bedroll home. You need to repent. Come back in seven days, and once you're clean, I will give you the gospel. No, Jesus didn't even bother with the bedroll. Jesus wanted to told him to carry it. And then he gave him the gospel. Because the gospel is king. The gospel is what matters the most. So Jesus gives this man the gospel. And look at what he does next. This is beyond my imagining. You know, you may say, well, the preacher should know everything. I don't know why this man did what he does next. I, <laughs> I wish I could see into his heart and say, what were you thinking, guy? But look at what he does. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He goes and tattles. It was Jesus. Jesus gives the man the gospel. Jesus heals the man. And the man goes and kind of, it was Jesus who did it. Don't put me in trouble. It was Jesus. He's, he's the one you want. And he points them at Jesus. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing this, these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. <laughs> I love Jesus. I mean, I love him because he saved me. I love him because he created me. But he will say things sometimes that will draw out the impurities in my own heart. So knowing that the Jews were persecuting him and wanting to go after him because he was healing people on the Sabbath, Jesus makes this statement to them. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, to us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, when some of us pray, we say, my father. We say, father. The Jews of that day, first century, did not refer to him as father, especially in that context, especially my father, which is very important. Jesus didn't say your father. Jesus didn't say our father. He said, my father. 
very important because look at that next verse. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now leave that verse up just a second, Tony. He was calling God his own father. And so Jesus knows this is what they're thinking. These are the little side conversations they're having there in the temple in front of him. And we're going to read what Jesus says next, and I want you to take note of how many times Jesus says father, or refers to father, even with a pronoun. Jesus knows this is what they're thinking. They're frustrated that he's calling God his father. They're frustrated that he's making himself equal with God, which he is. He is the son of God. He is God. John chapter 1 said the world was created by Jesus. He created it. And so Jesus knows that this is in their hearts and that they're missing the point of the gospel. They're missing the whole prophecies from the Old Testament prophets that the Son of God would come and save the world. And so Jesus speaks this word to them. Verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So he, he's calling himself the Son. He's calling God his Father. And he says in that verse <laughs> that he is doing God's will. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That he is doing whatever God, not only is he doing what God does, he can do whatever God does, is what he's saying as well. Look at the next verse, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So he says that life, that which these Jews believe that, life came from God. God breathed life into Adam and Eve. God brought life. Now Jesus is saying that the Son can also do this. That the Son can introduce life, speaking of himself, to people who now want to kill him because he's calling God his Father. He keeps calling God his Father, keeps calling himself God's Son, and he says that he can raise people from the dead. He can infuse life where there is death. And he's speaking this to these people, only angering them even more. Look at what he says uh, next in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Not that. He's saying there's something God doesn't do and has given all authority to do that to the Son. That judgment, and this is based on Jesus' death and resurrection, belongs to him. Verse 23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now this is a profound statement that would have sent those Jews into an uproar. He says the only way to honor God is by honoring the Son. It is impossible to honor God without also honoring Jesus. You cannot do one without the other. And if you honor God, you also honor the Son because they are also one. He's going to say that in another passage. So you, to honor God, you have to honor the Father. Now, when you think of honoring God, if I were to say to you, all right, now you need to make a list of ways you can honor God, what would you be thinking? Would you be thinking like a, a set of things you can do, like coming to church, giving your tithe, reading your Bible every day, being kind to people, doing, doing things, right? I mean, we all think that from time to time. 
even if someone would try to explain something else, in the back of our minds, it's been imprinted there. That that's how we honor God. We make God happy by doing these things. We honor him in doing this. But look at what Jesus says next. In the context of this is how you honor God, by honoring the Son. This is what he says, uh, how he says that is possible. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So the Father is honored. The Son is honored here with belief. Honoring God, honoring Jesus begins with belief. That's where it starts. Belief. Because if, honestly, if we were to analyze and lay out all the data from our lives, all the good things we've done compared to all the sins we've done, the good would not even compare to the sin list. Because of how perfect God is, our sin outweighs any good we could ever do. Even just one of our sins, something we might even call just a minor sin, outweighs any good we could ever do. And we deserve punishment for that because of God's perfection. And so Jesus says, that's not how you honor God. You start with the inside. You clean the inside first. It will come out on the outside, and you can praise him, and you can still worship him, and it will still bless him, yes. But you honor God with your belief. That's how you honor the Father, by honoring the Son through belief. Honoring God comes from belief and not a list of rules that we do. Honoring God comes from belief. That's why he comes to this man in the temple, not with a list of rules, but with the gospel. This is what it is. You need to believe. He didn't say, okay, believe and go out and don't carry your bedroll through the temple anymore because it makes people mad. He didn't tell him that. He just gave him the gospel. Repent so that you don't go to hell. That's what Jesus told him. Repent. Honoring God begins with belief. And so Jesus is building in his conversation with these Jews. Even in the midst of trying to redirect their spiritual wrongness, he's still trying to point those guys to the kingdom just as much as he was the guy he healed. And so in that, look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now that, Son of Man, that's a title from Old Testament prophecy, Son of Man. That's a title meaning Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's calling himself the Messiah to these group of men who know that. They know that title. They're familiar with that. And he's calling himself this. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now again, going back to what he spoke to the, the man he healed, he's not talking about you do good things in this life, you get eternal life. By doing good, he's talking spiritually, he's talking belief. That's what he's been talking about this entire time. You believe, you get the resurrection to the life. If you do not believe, you get resurrection to judgment. And you spend eternity in that punishment. But Jesus is saying that the Son of Man, the Son of God himself, Jesus, brings life. Brings life. Brings life to the people. Brings, he brought life to this man in giving him the gospel. He's bringing life to his opposers. 
to his persecutors, to the guys who want to kill him, honestly, to the guys who in just a short while will vote to kill him. He's bringing life to them. Whether they receive it or not is up to their belief. But he's bringing them life when all that the world offers, maybe all that they know is death. All they know is negativity and anger and frustration. He's bringing life. Jesus offers life when this life only offers death. And what is the life that Jesus offers? It is eternal life. But along with the eternal life, it is strength and it is peace and, and, and it is, is contentment, and it is humility, and it is power to be known now. Jesus said in John chapter 17 that eternal life begins the moment you believe so that you have access now to all the benefits we will have then in that. Jesus' word. Je- Jesus, the Son of God, gave us that guarantee, that promise. Anything that we will have then, you can experience and have access to in this moment. Maybe not to the fullness we will have then, because we'll have new bodies. But you can still access it and experience it now. You can have it in this moment. Jesus brings life. But we still at times put faith in the things of this world. We still pursue things of this world as though it will give us life. Whether it be money, or more money, or whether it be the approval of so and so, or this and that. Or whether it be trying to be liked by so many different people, or, or whether it be trying to force our political opinions on other people. We, we, we pursue all of these things, but none of that brings life because all of those things are of this world. And so they all bring death. They all bring struggle. They all bring us down. There are some social media platforms that I've made it a rule at certain times during the day, I will not get on because it's a cesspool. And I know where my mind will go if I, if I click that little uh, place on the screen and that thing pops up. I know where my mind's going to go because I know the majority of the people who are there. <laughs> and it's going to be a bad situation. Because it will bring me down, maybe not to physical death, but to the point of you know, feeling lower and feeling negative and feeling the death that permeates this place. And it will spew out of me onto those in my house. Because I'm not breathing life, I'm breathing that other stuff. I may be alive because I have Jesus, but what I'm breathing isn't life-giving because all I'm consuming, all I'm inhaling is doing me harm and everyone around me harm because I'm breathing death in and out and in and out and in and out. Do you see Jesus talking about political mess and they had a lot more political mess than we do I guarantee you it was first century Rome we don't have people executing people on the street corner and it being perfectly fine we don't have prostitutes on the street corner it being perfectly fine into Queen Arkansas and then executing them on the street corner and it being perfectly fine maybe they had a sanitation department to clean up the bodies just like we have a department to clean up you know the stray animals we don't have any of that They did. Jesus didn't speak against that. Jesus spoke of eternity and the gospel. He could have, absolutely. And I'm sure he was against it. But what mattered the most was the gospel because he was here for a short time. And to get lost in the peripheral is to miss the point. Just the same reason he didn't rip this guy for carrying his bed 
Because the gospel was what was most important. The gospel was what was most important. Not getting lost in all the other things. It was all about the gospel. All about the gospel. Even going to a restaurant. I'm about to get up in your business. You ready? When you go to a restaurant, how much do you tip? Do you tip based upon the quality of the service? Or do you tip based upon the amount of spirit you have in your heart? Because if you're going to go to a restaurant after church, they know you're coming from church. I tell you, if you've ever had a conversation with a waiter or a waitress, they hate Sunday afternoons. Because Christians come in there and shortchange them on a tip. Even if the service is bad. You know what Paul said in Corinthians? We're going to study this today in my Sunday school class. It's better to be cheated and the gospel be communicated well than to assert my rights and destroy my witness. Even if that means I give an extra three bucks on the tip so that person will be more willing to hear what I say rather than shortchanging them and they don't hear anything I say. If I slip in a track with the 50 cents I leave them, not only are they going to throw the track away, it's going to leave them a bad taste in their mouth about the gospel. It's going to do damage. What's more important, the money or the gospel? Y'all are pretty quiet. I'd say this, was a re- this is not a unique thought to me. This was spoken into my life at some point in the past, decades ago, and it had profound impact. I could not shake it from my mind. The gospel is always the most important thing. Always. The gospel, the gospel is more important than your job. The gospel is more important. The gospel is more important than getting your kid a sports scholarship. The gospel is more important than making sure your neighbor had the mowing line straight. The gospel is more important than how you were raised to treat people who look different than you. The gospel is more important than how that person wronged you all those years ago. Gospel is more important than that. Gospel is more important than that. What did Paul do when people were trying to kill him? He tried to save the people trying to kill him. Jesus asked God to forgive the very guys who put the nails in his body. The gospel is more important than anybody who spoke something negative to you, who said something negative to you. Maybe the person who signed your check. Gospel is more important than your opinion of that person's personal decisions. The gospel's more important. The gospel's more important than anything we would pursue or experience in this life. And the hurt you may feel, the wound you may have from that thing so many years ago, it may be f- for real. You may say, preacher, man, you ain't got no idea what I went through and what I dealt with. You're right, I don't. But if that person approached you in a line after you gave your testimony, could you shake their hand, forgive them, and give them the gospel the way Corey Tinboom did? That Nazi guard who stood in her shower. Could you give that person the gospel? She did. 
She struggled with it at first, but she did. Because the gospel is more important. There is nothing as important as the gospel of what you can do in this life. It's even more important than belittling the internet company phone answerer because of the extra $3 you were charged last week that you shouldn't have been charged. The gospel's more important. The gospel's more important than any of it. It's more important than asserting your rights. It's more important than asserting your opinion. It's more important than being right. It's all about the gospel. You know, I mean, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, I mentioned a minute ago about Paul saying it's better to be cheated. He said, if somebody sues you, then let them sue you. Settle it out of court. Pay whatever they're asking, all for the purpose of being able to tell them the gospel. Why would you go and, especially if it's two believers and you're dealing with an issue, and go before an unbeliever and, and show what terrible people we are? Just deal with it. For the sake of the gospel, it's better to be wronged and communicate the gospel well. Because how we're wronged in this life is by this life, is according to this moment, and is according to this life. And it's going to pass away, even if it's terrible and awful and, and just beyond imagining, like a Nazi soldier in your shower. It could be terrible, and genuinely so. But it will pass at some point. You will pass into heaven. And we will be living there for eternity in the face of Jesus. And the gospel will be what mattered. Not how deep the scar is, and the scar may be incredibly deep. It may be cut all the way to your heart. And it impacts your, your waking attitude, something that happened 40 years ago. It could be affecting your relationships today. But you have to make a decision. What's more important? right now what's more important right now me asserting my opinion me saying my opinion me living this way me, me inhaling the death and exhaling the death what's more important the gospel's more important breathe in life Jesus offers life when everything in this world offers only death that's the only way somebody like Corey Timboom can offer forgiveness to that guy is because of Jesus. She was breathing in Jesus. And life was offered because of that. That's the only way we can do any of this, is through Jesus. Jesus strengthening us. I mean, I was thinking this morning about the Apostle John. All of his friends had died for the gospel, been killed, been put on crosses or beheaded or strapped to horses and had them pull them apart. All these guys have been killed and John was left alive for decades after they all died. Then he was exiled to an island by himself. John, who we almost never hear speak, and he's out there all by himself, all his friends dead, alone. And in Revelation chapter one, who shows up? Jesus. And then we get the book of Revelation. And we get the book of John that we're reading from right now. Who wrote this? John, in his, we assume, very old age, in the AD 90s, 
was the time period we believe he wrote this. This was a very long time after he walked the earth with Jesus physically. And he was only able to do it because he was breathing in Jesus and exhaling life, this life that we're able to read right now because of that moment. What are you breathing in? What are you breathing out in your life? Are you giving the same life Jesus did? The same life he gave that man, are you giving it? Or are you giving something else? Maybe you need to breathe in the gospel for the first time today. Maybe you need to believe in Jesus for the first time today. And it's real simple. The God, you don't have to, you know, sometimes we, we, we complicate the issue when it comes to the gospel. And you may feel overwhelmed, like you don't know enough to share the gospel. But Bob Fielding told us one time, if you know enough to know the gospel, you know enough to share the gospel. Gospel simple. You believe that Jesus is God's son. He died so all your sins would be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. That's it. You could call it three sentences or just one run-on sentence. Either way, I'll say run-on sentence. My wife's the English teacher, not me. So she, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it's okay. And she, she would read my papers when I would turn them into seminaries. She would correct all my, we had disagreements on commas. And so since I'm on the platform with the microphone, I'll say the commas were okay in that sense. And that's the gospel in three little phrases. Jesus is God's son. Jesus died so all your sins would be forgiven. Jesus rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that, you gain salvation. The very salvation Jesus told this man in the first century, he's speaking to us today. If you believe the gospel, you get this life, this life he offers, this access to peace, this access to power, this access to strength. You get it now if you believe the gospel. And if you're in the room and you want to believe the gospel, I want to talk to you. I want to pray with you. I want to celebrate with you today. Let this be the day you come to know Jesus. If you're watching online and you want to know Jesus, that's all you have to do is believe. Click that button right below wherever you're watching this video. It's on all the platforms. Wherever you're watching, there's a button right there or a link that says, I made a decision. You click that and you tell uh, you right there what your decision was. I want to know Jesus. Just say that. And it sends an email to me, and I will call you this afternoon if you put your phone number there. I'll give you a call this afternoon, and I will pray with you and celebrate with you. Come to know Jesus. But all of us need to analyze and figure out what are we breathing in and what are we breathing out. And if something is coming out of us that is death to those around us, we need to figure out what are we breathing in that's making us breathe that out. And we need to fix what we inhale. Maybe we're inhaling secondhand smoke because somebody in our life is breathing out death. And we need to cut that off. We used to go to restaurants as a kid not many restaurants allow smoking anymore. But if they ever seated us, and if you're too young, they used to have a smoking section and a non-smoking section. If they would seat us in our family too close to the smoking section, my dad, to make a point, would cough very loudly through the entire meal until the person stopped what they were doing. I mean, very loud. My dad's been visited here. He's a music minister. He's a singer. He's very loud. And he would cough full volume for a long, long time to get the point across. You need to stop what you're doing because I don't want to inhale what you're breathing. We may need to do that to the people in our lives. I need to stop breathing in what you're breathing out because it is causing a great detriment to my own spiritual lungs 
and to the lungs of those around me. You need to figure out what are you breathing out? And if it's not all life, then what are you breathing in that's causing that death? Verse 